politically speaking, those are the values, I think, inequality, the tangible nature of politics, concern for the climate, as well as racial justice. And of course, um, concerns about wellness and school shootings and gun violence more broadly. Those are the, the seminal events so far of this generation. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is John Della Volpe, who is an expert in youth public opinion in the United States. He was part of the polling team at the Biden campaign in 2020, looked at the youth vote, and he runs a public opinion firm called Social Sphere. He's also the longtime director of polling at Harvard University's Institute of Politics and author of the recent book, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Passion and Fear to Save America. We talked about how he built his career and what he sees happening politically with the most recent generations. You should listen. So after a word from our sponsor, my interview with John Della Volpe of Social Sphere and Harvard's IOP. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. John, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, my name is John Delavolpe, and for 21 years, I've been the polling director at the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. In addition to that, I'm the founder and CEO of a public opinion research company called Social Sphere, based in Cambridge. And I am the author of my, of my first and a brand new book called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. And that puts you in a number of categories that work with my podcast, because I'm interested in entrepreneurship in the political space, and you've done some of that. I'm certainly interested in public opinion, and I talked to a lot of authors about their work. And also, you didn't mention that you spent some time consulting with the Biden campaign in the last election. And so I've talked to other pollsters who've done that, certainly a, a crucial role in a pivotal election. So. All, all things that I'd love to talk to you a little bit yeah, about. Yeah, I, I look forward to exploring that because I think that was a, a really unique approach to how the campaign organized polling and research. And um, I think it's 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 a really worthwhile conversation. Cool. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just describe a little bit of your background? Where did you grow up? What did you learn through the education part of your life, which of course continues past formal education? I grew up in uh, in Brockton, Massachusetts. Uh, was not necessarily part of a of a of a political family. My parents made a point of actually not telling me 
who they voted for. When I would ask them, you know, after governor's races or, or presidential races, when I was a kid, perhaps they wanted me to kind of identify kind of my own interests and my own values and became, I think, inspired by history and reading about JFK and Bobby Kennedy being so close to, um, you know, kind of the library and other parts of their legacy in Massachusetts. And in college, I was an activist and organized my campus in 1988 for Dukakis, not easy. I went to college in California, Southern California. It was actually a swing state back in the mid 80s. And uh, after that, I worked in a handful of years on uh, political campaigns across the country from Appomattox, Virginia to Chicago to Rhode Island, New Jersey, Western Massachusetts, and other places. I always thought I would end up in the political you know, industry in some place. Thought in those early days I might end up kind of in the creative space around media consulting, but I'm grateful that uh, a pollster that I worked with on a couple of different races must have seen some skills and uh, ability to perhaps synthesize information, write a memo and uh, organize thoughts that he thought would be helpful as a pollster. So I kind of came of it from that direction, not necessarily a math or statistics person. What were your roles on some of those campaigns? My first pay job was for $100 a week, actually, um, in a delegates race in Appomattox, Virginia. And uh, I was a campaign manager. And I think I had a staff of, I don't know, one or maybe two or three by the end of it. You know, What was fascinating about that, a um, few things. One is that was 1989. And that was part of like the same party that was in the process of electing um, the first African-American governor in Virginia since Reconstruction, Doug Wilder. Right, so it was well known. A lot of eyes were on Virginia for that reason. A lot of eyes were on my district actually because my uh, candidate was running for his first re-election, and the opponent's consultant was Lee Atwater, and he had created so uh, much controversy that our little campaign ended up on the front page of the Washington Post. So we had just a lot of eyes on us. And thankfully, because of that, me being, you know, 21 years old, I had a lot of help, you know, from people who I consider friends and mentors to this day to help me pull and to help me think about strategy and communications, et cetera. So that was just an incredible experience. We won that campaign, thankfully. And then, you know, after that, I had a variety of different roles from from campaign manager on congressional and state senate kinds of races, but, uh, you know, research director, opposition research, research director, communications, just a variety of different roles. I worked for Senator Simon in Illinois in his reelection. I worked for the State Party of New Jersey. I worked on some of my greatest experiences with some races that unfortunately we lost, but it still taught me a lot about politics and uh, how to think creatively. But I always tended to organizing research, organizing positions, opposition research. It was always kind of focused around that. And I guess in the early days, my ability to synthesize that and then present that to the pollsters and to the campaign manager, to the media consultants, earned me kind of a seat at the table much earlier than if I had um, worked perhaps in other parts of that campaign. Who was the pollster that you mentioned that became something of a mentor or spotted you spotted me and gave me my first job it was it was doug Schoen, Penn and Schoen. you know this was in this was in uh 1991 and 1992 you know uh so it was before um 
the company grew to what it is today before they were engaged in, uh, you know, with Bill Clinton's midterm and his reelect, et cetera. It was a, a group of a dozen or so folks when I was there. Um, I learned a ton in a very, very short amount of time, a ton. And I had a lot of responsibility, a lot of responsibility as, as a young person pulling for Evan Bayh was a client pulling for kind of a, a prime minister or two. They had incredible um, client base and they were really open to sharing their expertise, access to those clients. So I could kind of develop very, very quickly. I had uh, Mark Penn, his partner on the show some time ago. And also I've, I've followed that partnership and that firm. If you watch what they, what they write about these days, it's generally like, how can we get the democratic party back to the middle as they see it? They're, uh, I, I would say just, uh, much more in the what used to be called the new Democrat mode. How did you see? How did you see him at the time? And what what do you think? Where do you think he lands as a pollster and and as a political strategist? The way it worked is in those early days, Nathaniel. I worked most closely, you know, with with with, with Doug. Less closely with Mark. Obviously, I've kind of kept in touch in the many decades since. I've kept more in touch with Mark. Um, you know, I, and I actually write about in the book, you know, despite, you know, the fact that I may not be where I am today, if not for the hand I was given, I do think that um, the approach that perhaps worked in the 1990s to correct course for Clinton around kind of the third way politics, there are lessons there for sure that I think still a persistent and resonate today that makes sense, but I also question some of uh, of those positions as they're disconnected from the values of this emerging America that we have. And what I found consistently in a couple of decades of work, and what's so enjoyable I think about my work is you know. I've, I kind of grew up in the very practical side of politics, right? Conducting polls and developing messages to base TV commercials and direct mail off of. Also, I've had the flexibility of working in an academic environment for 20 years too, right? So I can explore kind of sociology, psychology, and values. And I would argue that a lot of my contemporaries focus too much on the transactional side of politics, the perfect message, the perfect policy plan, the perfect transaction as compared to investing in understanding values and how perhaps those might connect um, to message and to policy. I also think that I do talk about it in the book. I talk, I've talked about it in person that I think that the Hillary Clinton campaign of which Mark was a central figure, you know, chief strategist, I, th I think, you know, um, back in 2008 made a fundamental flaw in, in their strategy. Um, which ultimately opened up a pathway uh, for Obama, uh, Senator Obama back in those days to win Iowa and then, you know, very, very quickly put the nomination away. I just think it was a central flaw by not looking at the uh, wider electorate and, and understanding that millennials back in those days were about to do something very, very significant. And there are enough examples of previous elections and changes in attitudes that I think would have tipped them off if they had taken young people more seriously. I worked on that campaign uh, as the 
chief technology officer and was very frustrating from a strategic and tactical point to see where resources went and to watch the beautiful campaign that Obama ran uh, to take that nomination. But well, the nice thing was in a primary, you can kind of root for both in your own head, right? Right. Yeah. How did you end up at the Kennedy School at the Institute of Politics from working in the world of practical politics? It's a really interesting question. And we talked about kind of entrepreneurship. In the early 90s, uh, I, I was looking to kind of come back home, you know, come back to Massachusetts, honestly. And and there weren't a lot of uh, uh, jobs, you know, uh, outside of campaign work for, uh, you know, certainly for pollsters. Back in those days, there were three poll, pretty much, I think, three Democrat pollsters, right? Uh, sadly, two of which have passed away and one has retired, Tom Kiley. So I was like the fourth Democrat pollster in Massachusetts developing a little practice for myself. And one of the ways in which I tried to do that was I was an early investor in dial testing technology. People call them people meters or, or dials, you know, and I was always interested, right, in finding that third way. So, you know, bringing some, some new thinking or some new energy into traditional polling, I invested in that technology. And I think that's how I probably first became kind of engaged with the IOP and the Kennedy School. You know, I was out running around doing a bunch of dial testing for the Clinton campaign for TV news. I was testing Super Bowl ads for Good Morning America, just a variety of different things. I think I probably brought my dials to the Kennedy School and we we, we showed presidential debate through the lens of the dials. I became friends with some folks over there. And then, amazingly, two 19-year-olds in, in the winter of 2000, a couple decades ago, were on campus and they noticed that their friends on campus, their Friends back in high school and seemingly college students across America were so engaged in community service and volunteerism, it was noteworthy. But very few, when they looked at the actual data, voted in the most recent presidential campaign, which in those days was 96, right? So only a third of young people voted in 96. Almost two-thirds were volunteering in community service. They went to the IOP, of which I was not a member or a part of at that point, and they say, we want to do a survey. We want to understand what's this disconnect between volunteerism and voting. Don't people in our generation understand if we do both that we can you know, make more progress on the things that we care about? So Aaron and Trevor, I talk about the book. Aaron has just finished an incredible term as Deputy Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, so it's been fun to watch uh, her career as well as Trevor's. They were able to get some funding and they brought me in for one semester to conduct a study group to try to kind of understand this disconnect. And, uh, you know, one semester turned into, you know, almost four dozen semesters later and we're still doing it. It's just, I think just such a, such a gift, you know, the, the, the objective of the, of most everything we do at the IOP is just to simply to elevate the voice of younger people, right? Whoever they are, elevate their voice in the political process. So being that they're, such a moving target and difficult to, to you know, identify and to communicate and to speak to if you are in politics or in government or in a campaign. We felt that if we could conduct polling and elevate their voice and the issues that they care about, that there would be a greater opportunity for, for folks in power to, to, um, to connect with them, right? And then the more they were being connected to, the more likely they would be to kind of get back and to vote, et cetera. So yeah, that's what we've been 
it's been an uphill battle, I'll tell you. We've been doing the best we can now for over 20 years with this program. I assume you're an employee of the IOP or no? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, so that, yeah, the first semester, honestly, like I'm sitting in the, the compensation I received, right? I have a beautiful Harvard chair, you know, uh, that was compensation for my semester's worth of work there. Because who knew what was going to happen, right? It was... It was kind of an experiment, and uh, you stole a, a chair. Uh, <laughs> I think I have a clock on it. So thank you. You know, but um, yeah, the point is like, let's see what happens here, right? It was an opportunity for me to work with you know six or seven or so young people, you know, and that I probably did that sort of approach for four or five years, right? I'd come in at night, conduct a study group, and go back to you know my day job for four or five years. Um, during those years, I got to meet a young man named Peter Buttigieg, who we all know now as, you know, Democratic candidate for president and uh, Secretary, Secretary of Transportation. Yeah. Right. I met, you know, uh, uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, you know, when they worked collaborate together in my group. So I've, I, it, those are household names for people in politics. Dozens and dozens and dozens of other people who have made an equally um, important impression on me and our program. But when Senator Shaheen, now Senator Shaheen, she was our director of the IOP in 2005. She had uh, finished up, you know, uh, several terms as governor of New Hampshire, and she was our director. And while while I credit um, Secretary Dan Glickman for understanding the role that polling can play in improving a brand or building a brand or, or changing attitudes in Washington. He really helped mainstream the poll in the early years. Uh, Senator Simpson kicked it off. Senator Pryor was a part of it. Dan Glickman really understood the value of it to get people talking. Senator Shaheen was the one who really kind of created my official position and tried to uh, ensure that the polling program would be kind of a mainstay of the IOP moving forward. That's when I think I, I changed my title from advisor or consultant to the director of polling. And I've been kind of engaged in a similar way ever since then. As you know, last summer, I took a leave of absence, my first ever leave, you know, to, to get back into partisan politics for the Biden campaign, but uh, currently part-time, currently kind of a part-time staff member of the IOP, which means that I have the honor of, of working with 25, 30 or so undergrads every single semester who apply for our program. And uh, collectively, over the course of several Monday nights and Sunday nights and other days over the week, we meet as a group and I kind of help guide them through a process that results in analyzing publishing and talking about a youth poll. When I was a grad student at MIT, I took a course or two at the Kennedy School and went to an event or two at the Institute of Politics. And it is an unusual place that attracts major figures. For people who haven't been to the Kennedy School or to the Institute there, how would you characterize that place and its role in American politics? Well, let me first talk just about the IOP for, a little, for, for, for just a moment, right? So the IOP is, is one of, I would argue, at least one of the three perhaps most important 
of the living legacies of President Kennedy, right? There are probably hundreds of, of elementary schools and other high schools and things named after him. But when you look at the Presidential Library in Boston, you look at the Kennedy Center, and you look at the Institute of Politics, three of the, the most important living legacies. And the IOP was designed um, back in those days very, very clearly to be a bridge between practical politics and academia, centered squarely on undergraduates at, quote, Harvard College, at the college, right? And through that, there's two or three signature programs that connect with the overall with the overall Kennedy School, which make it such a vibrant place, one of which is the fellowships, right? So every semester now, for decades, we bring in consulting with our students in terms of what they're interested in understanding, you know, five or six of the most prominent yet approachable members of the kind of the kind of the political industry from governors and heads of state and diplomats and, and members of the media and journalism, et cetera, campaign staffers, et cetera, for residential fellowships where they teach a, a non-credited study group like my study group. It's an extracurricular activity. And then they um, host office hours and and again, just kind of can show the approachable nature and the importance of uh, of political engagement to our students. That's an important part of it. And I think that is really kind of the lifeblood, frankly, of the IOP and the Kennedy School from where I sit on a day-to-day basis, like the collaboration and the excitement on both sides. When you have, you know, perhaps a member of Congress or a Senate who might have just lost a tough election, you know, and comes back to thinking they're going to teach a course, but in te- instead it really changes their life and they open up and can see all the hope and optimism when they spend so much time with our students and other students. So that's an incredible thing for me to witness and to watch and to be a part of. But the other part of the Kennedy School and the IOP, which I believe is so central to our politics, is the forum. It's now called the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. And I believe that is one of the uh, places in America that provides an opportunity for heads of states, corporations, journalists, et cetera, to present their ideas, not necessarily to lecture, sometimes we have lectures, of course, but to present their ideas to an audience of hundreds and now online thousands. It's just a terrific opportunity for this free exchange of ideas. No one ever gets paid to speak at the forum. They cover expenses, of course, okay? And the only rule is that they have to take a question from anybody who asks it, right? So this is just an incredible opportunity for an undergraduate to ask sometimes very, very difficult questions to our leaders. I was there when uh, some of my students, you know, challenged President Clinton when he came into the forum, right? Or Robert McNamara. There are just incredible opportunities. And I don't know, Nathaniel, of any other place in America really where that exists. But yeah, you know, listen, and I hope it evolves and it has to evolve with the use of technology and further open up that space so not just our students can participate and learn and engage, but hopefully students and young people and anyone else, you know, throughout the community or, 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 or the nation or beyond. It's an exciting place to be. You mentioned both Stefanik and Buttigieg. And in a certain way, I feel like they're weirdly representative of the divergence in our country, right? Both intelligent people with uh, political acumen, one who aligned with the Democratic Party and made quite a 
amazing run for president and has incredible feeling going forward in Mayor Pete. And then Stefanik, who, in my partisan view, squandered her reputation to some extent and aligned with Trump, but maybe represents that bargain that most members of the Republican Party are making right now with the electorate and where power lies. Would you have observations about the two of them and that divergence? Pete or Peter, as we knew him when he was, you know, 19 or, or, or 20 years old at the IOP, he played a very elemental role in the evolution of, of my work and, and this program. I would keep in touch with him over the years when he was mayor. He would obviously kind of come back to our new mayor's conferences. We were, you know, kept in touch and kind of clearly kind of followed his career over, over the years. With Elise, with Congresswoman Stefanik, I was invited um, to speak with other pollsters who were focusing on the youth vote to a Republican Policy Conference Caucus Committee. I've kept in touch to some extent uh, with her as well. I don't think from where I sit, Pete or Secretary Buttigieg really has changed. You know, the questions he was asking me, the questions he was asking his fellow students, the way he was shaping our survey instruments, his curiosity manifested itself a couple decades later in terms of, I think, one of the most important contributions he, along with my partner and colleague at Social Square, Jonathan Chavez, made. I think uh, Pete recruited Jonathan into that study group, both kind of connected over being Maltese coming from Malta, um, but it was like an understanding who the independent voter is, right? Back in those days, Nathaniel, I think a plurality of younger people weren't comfortable in either party, you know, they were independents, but Pete would really stress, like, I could be an independent, you could be an independent, we could be coming from totally different places in terms of how we vote, right? So he really pushed us to understand values, understand the role of religion, and we developed some pretty sophisticated modeling to really help us understand what the not only the youth electorate, but I also think the overall electorate looks at, you know, and very, very quickly, we found that, you know, about half, a little bit more than half, you know, some some years of young Americans, it applies to older Americans as well, can fit pretty neatly on X, Y axis, X on a left-hand side, traditional progressives or Democrats like an FDR, LBJ, on the right-hand side, traditional, traditional conservatives, mainline Republicans, but the other half don't really fit. And what we found was this additional dimension, frankly, around religiosity that was a driver. And we found this group called the Religious Center, which had a high propensity of African-Americans, Latino voters. Um, and they were very progressive on issues regarding access to health care back in, you know, 2002, four or five. And also uh, investing in climate change, even at the expense of business, but more conservative than their counterparts on social issues like abortion gay rights, marriage, those were things that were part of the debate back in those days. So he helped us understand, you know, that some people almost half aren't comfortable in either party and they're looking for something different, right? And I think he's he showed and continued, you know, to talk about politics from a similar perspective, right? Elise Stefanik was involved in many things at the IOP, so she was not as directly involved with me on a on a regular basis on the survey. But listen, she was a she was a Republican on our campus. When the Republican brand, perhaps it's not as 
as tarnished. It's not certainly is not as tarnished among young people as it is today. But it was not a popular thing to 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 be interested in serving, you know, in the White House under a very unpopular President Bush towards the end of, of those wars. So she was always someone very confident in her views, not um, afraid to speak up for what she believed and to do things that were certainly kind of less popular on, on our very pro- progressive campus. Right. I'm not sure that I would have predicted where she ended up in terms of uh, full MAGA. But I know that she's someone who I always had uh, an excellent relationship with and was always curious in understanding the values of young people. As I said, it's evidenced by me having the honor to to present to her and her colleagues when she was, I don't know whether it was her first or second term in Congress. Youngest female member ever elected. I think AOC might have been a little bit younger. So she's probably still the, the youngest female ever elected to Congress, if not the youngest, period. At some point along the way, you started Social Sphere, which you've mentioned a couple of times. What's the founding story there? Uh, that seems like it's different than the consulting that you were doing previous, or is it just an extension of that? It's an extension. You know, uh, I had, had always had an interest in kind of pushing further beyond the traditional polling and focus groups that people in our field do invested in those dial testing technologies. And um, a couple of things were happening when I started Social Sphere. I think we uh, founded it specifically in 2007. So a couple of things were happening. One of which was we're seeing my polling of young people now was completely online. And because it's young people, uh, probably one of the first to really understand and invest in online data collection of young people. Didn't have the capacity for a variety of reasons to do a larger, uh, more representative samples of, of a, a wider electorate in those days online. That was something that I knew was coming. During that same time, I was polling and tracking issues in a variety of other states on the telephone. And honestly, looking at the marginals coming back on a nightly basis, I just was like, less comfortable. We talk about these margin of error, but I always look of, of you know, 5%, which is essentially means that one out of 20 polls has a, has a fly in it, right? Um, that you need to uh, basically throw out and redo. But when you, when you sample properly and when you're polling properly, you can take a look at the results on a nightly basis and they really shouldn't change so much night to night to night to night to night. The trends should be aligned. In you know, 04, 05, 06, I'm starting to look at these nightly results and seeing just these wild shifts and just not as comfortable, beginning to lose confidence in the quality of telephone interviewing that I was seeing firsthand and also looking at throughout the industry. That's happening. So I'm, I'm less confident in my ability and our collective ability to, to collect rigorous telephone samples. Um, I know that there's pressure from millennials to not talk on the telephone, to provide um, insights and opinions in other ways. And this is the dawn of, quote, Web 2.0, right? Well, I don't think we were t- talking about social media, but this is when, um, you know, 04, Howard Dean's campaign, right, started to take meetups from a, a physical to a virtual space, blogs, comments. There's just a lot of ways that people were, were finding ways to express themselves online. And the premise of Social Sphere was, can we 
add kind of that additional input into our system to understand opinion. And my philosophy is if people feel so strongly about something that they want to share it online, Facebook, a blog post, that's important for me to understand as an opinion researcher, right? So um, how do we collect that information? How do we make sense of it? How do we figure out who and what is most influential? And that was fascinating time because we created algorithms, we collected a lot of data, it allowed us to to see um, the ways in which some of the great movements of our time were developed. We invested in understanding uh, the early days of the Arab Spring, as as an example, you know, and just, you know, dozens and dozens of other kinds of communities. And my philosophy, which remains to this day, is that whoever you are, whether you're running for president of the United States or whether you are, you care about your local, you know, uh, PTA or PTO, that there are, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands, or millions of people who are looking to engage, right? And if, and if I can identify some of these influencers and kind of connect them um, with people in power to leverage everyone's talents, that's going to be a good thing. So, um, so that was the genesis of social sphere, right? Let's invest very early, by the way, very, very early, right? In Twitter, Facebook, these other secondary data sets and see if we can both understand public opinion, but also empower our clients as well as our clients' fans with some richer connections. How is it done as a business? How is social sphere done as a business? Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, it's uh, we've had a, the, the best year I think we've ever had, you know, and I don't know, maybe that's, because I took time off from the company, you know, in Harvard and to focus on Biden. And I took a lot of time off of the book. So I don't know, maybe maybe there's a, a, a story there. But um, it's doing really well because... I mean, a good I company think, tends to have its best year as the most recent year. Yeah, right. True. It's uh, But it's much stronger than it ever was. How many people? Ten. Small company. It's very, very small. Um very, very small. And the reason is because personally, as the founder of it, I have a lot of different balls there, right? You know, Harvard, the book, the uh, the, the company. We, it was larger, honestly, when we were investing in a lot of that social media data, where we had a much larger team of uh, technologists, as by three times the size, uh, and analysts. And we're on the verge like at the table to um, to offer it up and to sell it to a, a very large global publicly traded company. Decided not to in 2017 and tried to refocus it less on the social media and the secondary data sets for reasons that we could probably are all aware of now in terms of you know where, where that was headed and really kind of zeroed back into Kind of the roots of the company in applying technology to pull in focus groups. But the reason I say it's my definition of success, Nathaniel, isn't just like growth or a profit margin, but the quality of clients and the, the questions that they're asking us, right? That's kind of how I, frankly, uh, based its level of success. So, for example, we're working with an organization that cares deeply about improving the quality of education in K through 12 public schools, right? And they work with dozens of other local organizations around the country. And our ability 
to help give voice to students and teachers and parents and try to put education into focus uh, longer term as well as shorter term for politics. The ability to do that um, and to do that well is a real blessing. We have worked with the United States Marine Corps Recruiting Command for 13 or 14 years. So the ability to work on big, important issues that I think are at the crux of who we are as Americans and our institutions is, is really important. Do a lot of work also on criminal justice, criminal justice reform. So it's the ability to work with clients like that um, and to help them understand the values of this emerging America, which keeps us all kind of excited. And you know what? Since we're talking, we, we've just hired a couple of folks. We've got a couple more positions probably coming on board this spring as well. So we're always interested in, in uh, talking to folks. It makes it easier, honestly, now that it's a more virtual world. There was a limited number uh, of folks with this kind of practical experience up in Boston, honestly. So now that we're virtual, I think it kind of opens up opportunities for, for everybody. You touched on like this decision not to sell it. And I'm very interested in that because I spend a fair amount of time talking to people in the political tech world, particularly, who sometimes are trying to make a decision around, should I sell this enterprise or should I not? What are its prospects this way or that way? How does that affect me in terms of what kind of work will I have? What kind of clients will I have? What kind of satisfaction? What kind of success as I, um, as I understand success? Depending on what you can sell your enterprise for, which could be you know millions of dollars for some of these people, you could have a life-changing event, but lose control of your baby, basically. So I don't know who it was. I don't know if it's like Ipsos or one of these big enterprises that, uh, that have enormous weight in the public opinion world globally. But you have two different roads. How did you think about that decision uh, at the time? Well, when I started Social Sphere, I made the decision at that point not to name it, you know, Della Volpe and Associates or, you know, to attach any any name, right? And I, I wanted to kind of create a process and a set of uh, tools uh, that would provide us flexibility to sell it. My wife and I funded completely ourselves, right? So we didn't take on any sort of uh, investors. Within 10 years, you know, we had that opportunity to to sell it, right? So that was um, that was success. You're right. We would have sold it to a, a very well-known kind of global company who was looking for a, a presence in the United States, right? The benefits of that is that we could expand our, our thinking, right, and collaborate with folks in a dozens of countries. Very, very exciting, right? Small company back in those days have much larger opportunity to learn from other sort of colleagues, right? That was kind of uh, the, the upside. But the more that I thought about it, and, the, and certainly in retrospect, um, and this is a personal decision, and many other people would, would disagree and have a different, different you know, decision, um, which is completely, obviously, fair. But I started this conversation telling you that I thought I was going to be a, a creative and media consultant, right? So I have a lot of interests, a lot of ideas, and perhaps 
at the end, at the end of the day, I realized that the 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 package that I was being offered, right, was did not in the day to day responsibilities I would have would not, in my opinion, utilize my greatest strengths. And I probably saw that more clearly than they did, right? It would have been a very significant financial opportunity for us. But um, I had more faith that I could continue to have enough success to build the company the way in which we were continuing to build it and, you know, for our family security, et cetera. So that was kind of the decision. And I just felt so relieved when I came back from New York asking for something from from them. They never gave it, you know, and we walked away and I just felt so much relief. It had taken like a whole year to get to that final process, right? And lots of money, as you know, and lawyers' bills and time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not sure I write the book. I'm not sure I work for Biden. You know, I'm not sure we're having this conversation or, or I have the ability to even understand Gen Z, if not for that decision I made. Pretty faithful and uh, sounds like probably pretty wise in your case. You said when I when I mentioned the Biden consulting that you want to explore that more, and I certainly do. How did that come to to be, and what was that experience like? Oh, um, terrific story! Really quick, how that how that came to be is that um, I was seated at a dinner. I'm part of an organization called Eisenhower Fellowships, and the chairman of Eisenhower Fellowships. Um, for many years, was the late great General Colin Powell, and we were having a celebration in his honor at the Philadelphia Constitution Center uh, a handful of years ago. And Vice President Biden, at that time, was a chair. He came, and I was honored to sit next to him. I had not really spent any time with him before, but people were looking out for me at Eisenhower Fellowships. Right? It was very quick. He was obviously, you know, <laughs> very busy that night. But we had a quick conversation about young people. He took my um, little placard from the table, wrote my number down, and says, uh, if I fall, call you. Like, how many people have said that to you and never followed up? Most of a week them. La- yeah. right? <laughs> right. A week later, a week later, I'm walking down uh, to my favorite little restaurant, Vietnamese restaurant, Harvard Square. Phone call. It's him, uh, vice president. A week or two later, I spend some time with him at his house sharing whatever insights I had. That's what I do, right, at Harvard. Like anyone who calls wants to understand that's what I do, Democrats, Republicans. I did that. And we kind of continue that conversation up until uh, 2020, you know, late spring, when he was securing the nomination, obviously, and and doing that. I also had many other kind of connections within his world. Um, His sister, Valerie Biden-Owens, is someone who's a friend I've gotten to know through her fellowship at the IOP, and I would literally bump into her, including on the campaign trail in 2020 when I was with my students. So there were a lot of other mutual connections within his orbit, including Mike Donilon, who I had known since my first campaign. He was the pollster for the Virginia Party way back in 1989. So a little bit of trust, I think, uh, developed. And what was so fascinating, I think, in terms of the way in which Mike Donlin structured the polling operation, former pollster himself, was that, you know, uh, there were two prominent pollsters who have got incredible amount of respect for, who have been polling for vice president, now President Biden, for many years and other presidential campaigns, John Anzalone and Celinda Lake. 
right? So they, uh, John in particular, I think was, you know, the primary pollster and the chief pollster to that point and continues to play a very significant role. So Linda Lake and John and their teams shared approach across the, you know, a dozen, 15, 18 battleground states that we looked at, right? And that's not unique in a presidential, you know, uh, a campaign operation. What was unique is they, they hired a series of what I would call subject matter experts, right? So it was my job to poll the millennial vote and Gen Z, you know? So uh, it was Dr. Silas Lee, who's a sociology professor from Xavier University in Louisiana to do the same program for African-Americans. We later hired Matt Barreto from Latino Decisions to do the same thing with Hispanic, Latino, audiences, et cetera. So you had not only the experts in each of these battleground states and national political campaigns for presidents, but you also had these subject matter experts. And I think collectively, it was to me, I just learned so much. Everyone was able to obviously kind of run their own lane, but also learn from every other's techniques and data, et cetera. And I just think that's the way that all operations should run. It's really hard to be an expert in every single area. And I think we ought to invest in maybe next time rural Democrats, right? Or independents and have some of these subject matter experts offering up um, their perspective into the mix. You have to have obviously the right structure and the right personalities, you know, um, to be successful in that. And, um, and we're able to, to do that. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. I talked to John Anzalone a couple times on this podcast and boy, it was kind of a relief to talk to him because there seemed to be just a confidence in the strategy and just a stability from his angle on the, on the electorate. Like we're going to execute our strategy. We're not going to bop up and down with every little curve on the road. Of course, whenever you win, people view you very differently in politics than if you lose. But there was something that I found just relieving and relaxing about a campaign that scared the crap out of me for the country, right? What was your experience about like how it felt within the campaign from a decision-making standpoint and a strategic standpoint? Well, I echo that. And John probably noted to you the leadership of the campaign, that was their approach. They were very well prepared and therefore very confident. Everything I did was virtual. All of it, all the focus groups, everything was done, you know, on the other side of Zoom. Um, still have never been in the same room, I don't think, with um, with our campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon. But from, from Jen to Mike, Donald, to the pollsters, to um, the others I interacted with, you know, um, media team, et cetera, the analytics team, right, which is run differently than the polling team, you know, um, we're constantly looking at, at, at scenarios, right, where we didn't need to win, you know, Florida. There are multiple different pathways to, um, to the Electoral College. And that was constantly what we would look at on a weekly basis in terms of the number of, of, of pathways, right? And I think kind of that ability to understand politics, to understand how, therefore, to invest resources properly from the very top, from where Jen was, made us confident. And also Mike Donlin's ability to understand, like no one else, Vice President, now President Biden and his unique abilities, right? And also 
you know, the the arc of of, uh, of presidential campaigns by being involved in so many, but also being students of this, um, and to always kind of keep us grounded in terms of perspective, it was also reassuring. The fact that the fundraising operation was so robust uh, enabled us to make significant investments in the issues that I cared about around young people, both, you know, mobilization, targeting, et cetera. So it's an incredible experience. Yeah, Yeah, I bet it was. At what point did the book start? What point uh, along the way did you get going on that? The book started, I made a decision to, to write the book after the 18 midterm elections. When the attitudinal data that I thought I should be watching that was going to be predictive of uh, of a historic turnout turned out to be accurate, I'm now two years into seeing young people in qualitative settings talk about mental health. I just knew there was something I needed to further explore. You know, the third thing actually was I was scheduled for back surgery in uh, at Christmas time, so I figured I'd be laid up for a little while. You know, and um, all those things. Ended up me getting the proposal accepted, you know, uh, basically three years from right around now. There's a couple of things that I was thinking when I was reading your book. One of them is just sort of on the side is like, I, I'm not sure if I believe in generations. There's this Gen Z, millennials, we, we have these labels. We struggle to come up with them sometimes. They kind of take on meaning and in our understanding over time. And I've, you know, I've, I've even had employees and I've rolled my eyes at the millennials because I had an employee that fits some stereotype, but is it, are they different than like a horoscope or, you know, this is the year of the rooster. Like how can you, how can you label an entire multi-year group of people around the same age with one word? That's a very fair question. So uh, here's the way I I approach it. Okay. It's in the introduction, I'm sure, where I I say, like, I'm not the kind of person who says you need to be born on this day and this month and this year to be part of this generation. Right. Technically, if that were the case, like my kids would be part of two different generations. Right. I'm a 27, a 25 and a 22 year old. Okay. That's a good example, right? Though they may be technically, according to some researcher somewhere, different generations, a, 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 a millennial and two Gen Zers or whatever. But I think the experience, the collective experience that they had as a member of our family, that their peers in school uh, in Massachusetts and around the country have had with this group, um, have really helped shape how they view the world. Okay, Now, they're not going to look at these these events in America's history, which is different than the history and events of other nations, and 100% agree uh, on those. But the way I think about generations is there was this collective experience that helped inform who we become. Yeah. Right? Did you get hit by 9-11? Did you get hit by the Great Recession in 2008? Trump. Right. Obama, All of these things, opioids. they do... They do make a difference if you're 22 and this thing happens, right? You're graduating and the job market stinks or whatever. Yeah. And with an appreciation for um, that, the brain doesn't fully mature until the age of 25. 
And there's a lot of, uh, of literature that indicates like your perspective and who was president and what that experience was like when you're, you know, in, in, in middle school really informs, you know, from an academic informs how you think about politics later in life. Right. I don't mean to over over generalize. However, there are some groups of people, some quote generations that have very strong characteristics and values, the way in which I measure them based upon politics. Other generations don't, right? I'm a member of Gen X, right? We're smaller, kind of disrespected, right? And there's not really kind of a central identity. And we continue to this day to be pretty much a swing group, 50-50 in terms of kind of who we're supporting um, politically. Um, but this group uh, of Gen Z following the millennials, I just saw just like this massive transformation in terms of who they are politically. Don't forget, Nathaniel, when I first looked at this generation uh, in 2000, younger people were just as likely to vote for uh, George Bush as Al Gore in 2000. You have a lot of Xers who are younger voters in the beginning of millennials. So for me, it was, okay, we started off 50-50, and then we just saw this now 30-something point gap in, uh, in political attitudes, and I need to understand kind of why. The portrait of the young people that emerges from your book is that they are more progressive and more democratic than the other generations that are around. What are the things that shape them in that way? There are uh, four or five, now maybe six, I think, seminal events in the eyes the lives of, uh, of young Americans that have uh, helped shape their identity, their personal identity, and certainly the, their political identity and, and their values. We talked about the angst and the trauma and the stress that they have seen growing up. But I think it, certainly in the book, I kind of focus on five, uh, five key events. The first of which is not actually a, a Gen Z event at all. It's the Occupy movement. You know, this was a movement that some of the founders who are members of the silent generation kind of said they had gifted to to millennials. And then millennials being, I kind of refer to them as the older cousins of, of Gen Z, certainly could have influence. But this was when the older members of Gen Z, you know, were middle school, entering high school, and their lens and their views of politics began to really center around inequality in specifically economic inequality and uh, they have these notions about whether whether it was possible to even achieve the american dream so in the years subsequent to to that movement which is not necessarily regarded as being so successful um i would tell anyone who would listen that to really kind of get into the hearts and minds of younger people you need to start to talk about where they see inequality, not just economically, but throughout other parts of society. So that had a very important influence in, I think, how they approached economic issues, the questioning capitalism, not relative to socialism, but how do we modernize um, and improve the way in which capitalism is practiced today? That's one. And then a handful of years later, 2015, 2016, 2017, the next factors, I think, in the political maturation of, of, of Zoomers is Donald Trump. And um, I talk about this like seeming whiplash, right, between 
melodrama Obama and the reality talk show host that was Donald Trump. And from the beginning, from the earliest days of my research, I understood that young people participate in politics when they could see a kind of a tangible difference. That's what Donald Trump manifested, this tangible difference. Um, whether you liked him or not, you know, people were being allowed into this country or not based upon him being president in terms of uh, Muslim ban. We were pulling out of Paris, of course. Stephen Bannon was on the National Security Council. There was talk of a, of a border wall uh, on, the, on the southern border, et cetera. So that was something that was clearly um, fundamental. As all transformational political leaders are, I think, in, in the shaping of the values of a generation. Followed a year later uh, by Parkland, uh, February 14th, 2000. And at 18, and uh, we talked about younger people challenging all of us and empowering us to stand up and do something, which was translated into the largest turnout in midterm election, uh, perhaps ever, certainly within 30 or 40 years. And then uh, followed very, very quickly from Parkland to direct line, direct line from Parkland to the climate strike and climate uh, movement uh, started by uh, young Greta Thunberg, who was a anxious, passionate young young person who just couldn't seem to get the attention of the adults and uh, her, even her fellow students in her community. So she literally read about what David and Emma and Cameron and, and Ryan and others in Parkland did and, and tried to copy it. It took her a little while. For the first day or two, only her dad would help her, you know, and would be with her um, while she was uh, striking. But obviously, we know just a couple of weeks and months later, it became a global movement, which continues to influence domestic and foreign policy, both in the United States and, and dozens and dozens of other countries. And then that is followed um, a couple of years later by George Floyd's murder, which um Perhaps we're only talking about it still today because of the work of a very brave young 17-year-old high school student named Darnella Frazier, who after wrapping up like a lot of high schoolers do, she had a little bonfire with her friends. It was Memorial Day, and her she promised her little nine-year-old cousin that she would take her to get some dessert at the uh, convenience store, Cup Foods. Little did she know that she would record that gruesome murder. But also, as so many Zoomers do, she just went back for old mental health back to her apartment where you could still see the lights of the sirens over the trees and just like spoke, just like basically just pour her heart out on social media for everyone to see. And that's, I think how that video got, kind of got captured and got the world's attention. So those are the, the five significant events I think that have shaped this generation. All of those, by the way, right before COVID, we really don't know the ramifications, frankly, right. Of, of a couple of years of social isolation, missed opportunities with education, work, et cetera. But um, politically speaking, those are the values, I think, inequality, the tangible nature of politics, concern for the climate, as well as racial justice. And of course, um, concerns about wellness and school shootings and gun violence more broadly. Those are the, the seminal events so far of this generation. And I think it also feels like the success of the gay marriage movement and the new thinking about gender and preference and things like that has moved the country 
seems like might be part of it when I talk to young people. Yeah. And not only new thinking, but it's, it's right, right. It's new thinking for us, but for them, it's just, it's just natural, right? Just it's thinking. just thinking, right? It's just yeah. kind of who they are and who everybody is. But yeah, where, whereas there are some movements that take, you know, decades and decades to be achieved, some of which still aren't fully achieved, right? Voting rights, as an example. There are others that kind of capture the zeitgeist and seemingly change overnight. I mean, the, the gay rights movement took decades, but it, very, it moved very, very quickly. I think really when when millennials in particular, I think, actually um, began to think differently about this issue, but then also the conversations I think having with their parents, and their grandparents, uh, you know, shined a, you know a different light on uh, on some of the things that perhaps might have been taboo a generation ago. It gets back to I think the values around inequality that we talked about, right? Why should someone receive a certain a different set of benefits or a different privilege of some kind, just based upon who they like to spend time with or who they love? Because of this progressive bent, you see. Your book is very optimistic from a progressive point of view about the changes to come. I found myself, unfortunately, quite skeptical about the durability of those preferences. There's a 2018 election, which the Democrats do well. 2020, the, at least the White House has taken back and narrowly Congress and beat back Trump for, for the moment anyway. What do you see as you continue to study public opinion, as Biden's favorability is dropping generally with all the stuff that he has to contend with and the frustrations with actually getting some legislation through, what do you see happening with the younger generations as they watch this phase of politics? I think it's important not to conflate like partisanship and ideology, right? Um, so there's a, I think there's a couple there's a couple of things to it, right? Because too often... Too often, I think parties, political parties, Democrats and Republicans take this youth vote for granted. Democrats have taken them for granted in some respect because they don't really see, you know, a competitive Republican Party in this regard. So they don't tend to them. They don't nurture these relationships with them. And ultimately, they can turn out to be lackluster performance in general elections. We see that. Honestly, in 2016, Republicans take it for granted that they're only going to be Democrats and don't really compete for them. That's different than, than their values, right? So I just see this through the eyes of this data, specifically every spring for 20 years, we've been asking these 15 or so questions related to typology that don't really have any necessary kind of connection to the policies of the day, but do you feel like, you know, government should be larger or smaller? Should healthcare be a fundamental right? You know, should we prioritize climate even at the expense of business, et cetera? On every one of those questions, these generations have tended to uh, tilt more progressive every single year. Have you gotten to this spring, which is the, would be the first sort of down possibility? So... On the set of these issues, okay, um, if anything, Trumpism has caused this group to become more progressive, okay? On the issues in which he supported, Democrats kind of, I mean, younger people did the opposite and, 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 and were more favorable towards legal immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, different than Democrats and Republicans and Biden, right? Um, so we will release the next wave of our Harvard polling in April. We do it every April, right around um, 
what I call Patriots Day. People outside of Massachusetts would know as like the third week of April. But you're right. So we conduct that in March of every year. A year ago in March, Biden's approval rating, it was in the mid to high 50s, I believe, during that 100-day window. We took it again in the fall. It was uh, in the mid 40s, as I recall, down, you know, probably double digits, 10, 15 points. I'll put that into context in a couple different ways. I'm not saying that um, I'm happy or that any of us should be happy with what it is. I'm not making excuses. However, for eight years of the Obama administration, his approval rating averaged at 51%. So there's a difference when there's an election and there's a choice between one path and another path in terms of how younger voters or all voters choose to vote compared to what's happening when there's essentially kind of no competition and you're judging your own expectations versus what's reality. Two very different measures. So as successful as Obama was at the ballot box, he was 10 to 15 points lower in terms of his approval rating. Barack Obama, only among young people in the Harvard survey, he only received a net positive approval rating of white Americans, younger whites, only a couple times in the eight years in which he was president. And I think it's just like at the beginning and the end. It didn't really fluctuate more than a couple of points, literally in eight years of African-Americans. Um, that was at, you know, like I said, 75 to 80%. Young Hispanic Latino Americans were much more fluid and were really kind of the driving force between is his favorability or his approval going to be in the mid 50s or or lower 50s, et cetera. It was the, the elasticity around the Latino vote. We still see that today. In the Obama years, it was in the mid 60s all the way down to the 50s. So that's just a little of context in terms of how we think about the Biden vote. The other thing is when I started on the Biden campaign, I'm not taking credit, but I was wrapping up the, the the primaries and his favorability was 33%. And he turned out uh, uh, record numbers and he got 60% of the vote. His favorability was 55% by the end of it. So he's got a history of being able to turn this around. Okay. The question is, when we think about approval ratings, favorability, in my opinion, whether it's Biden or anybody else, I think there are three factors that we need to process. Is the disconnect around policy? Is the in choices around policy? Is a disconnect around values and vision? Or is a disconnect or disapproval, really, right? Driven by information and communication. Okay. Before I was connected with, with Biden, I wrote and, and spoke about that half of this generation's Democrats are looking for solutions, are looking for bipartisan solutions. Basically, kind of the the middle ground, a more moderate version of Democrats, where you know slightly more, but uh, it's roughly 50-50, slightly more, you know, kind of big, bold, and progressive. But it's it's a it's a fallacy to believe that this entire generation is a hundred percent kind of locked down in the Sanders, Warren, AOC. There's a lot of differentiation when we get there. Okay, knowing that, that's why I was comfortable knowing that Biden could do very, very well in the presidential. And that's why I remain faithful and optimistic that the issues with his approval are complex. COVID added a significant weight to all of us, especially younger people. I'm not making excuses for the impact or downplaying the impact of inflation. But I believe when you step back, when younger people step back, and I've had lots of these conversations with activists and others, 
the values and the vision are largely intact in terms of what the promise was a year, year and a half ago. And that improved um, politics, politicking, improved communication can, I think we'll see a rebound. I think we'll, we'll see a rebound. Biden's uh, press conference he had a few weeks ago, he talked about the two or three things that he was going to do differently this year compared to last year, one of which was talking to experts. I hope that includes younger people directly, you know, getting out of the uh, White House. I also hope that includes seeing and meeting, you know, and experiencing the lives of young people and then, you know, campaigning. Um, hopefully he reconnects with young people and they could see that, a large part of what they voted for actually has seen some progress. Even if the values of the majority of young people are as you have measured them, there's a substantial minority that are conservative Trumpist or something quite opposite to that. How well do you understand that part of the young people? What can you say about them? Again, I think there's two parts to it, right? There are conservatives and then there are Trumpists, right? And I think it's it's worth delineating the difference between the two. To put this into perspective, the last spring survey of 2021 at Harvard, we had a series of questions around election integrity, honestly. And, you know, to give you some sense, roughly 25 or so percent of, Amer- of younger Americans, 18 to 29-year-olds, approve of Donald Trump, are Republicans, are conservatives. They may not approve of every single aspect of what Donald Trump is about, okay, but they approve of him. And about half of that number, all right, so 12 and a half, 15, 18%, somewhere in there, believe that Joe Biden didn't win the election. So if I think about the entire generation, a quarter are Republican loyalists, fair to say, okay? You probably have another 15% or so of independents who are open to voting Republican. Probably depends upon who the Republican is. And maybe it's a little bit more, but um, not, not, it's not necessarily always a 70-30, 80-20 kind of split, okay? But you're dealing with an active 25 or so percent. But then half of that is drinking from the conspiracy cooler. You know, that proportion of the party, that proportion of a generation is smaller you know, when I compare that to the proportion from other generations, but it still exists, there's a question that I get concerned about um, around their openness to radicalization that I think is something that concerns me because I think this group of younger people have the same talents that David Hogg ha- has, right? That, um, that that Darnella has, Frazier, and so many other people have, right? So they understand technology, social media, movements, how to speak to people in a very emotional way, and they're talented in terms of uh, communicating or branding. So that's a, this is a group of people um, of which there are millions that we need to be very, very concerned about, I believe, very, very concerned about. Because, you know, I think the ADL would say the most prolific spreader of uh, white nationalism, white supremacy, is a Zoomer. A young man, I won't say his name, but uh, from Texas, who five years ago was an Eagle Scout, became radicalized, you know, in the uh, 15, 16 presidential uh, cycle. Forget about age. One of the most potentially violent 
insurrectionists from January 6th, you know, according to the, the, the federal judiciary system, was an 18-year-old, maybe he's 19 now, who comes from a, a suburban homeschooled, a very wealthy family living in suburban Atlanta, driven up to Washington, D.C. by his parents. Not that you lose custody when he's 18, but when he left a jail, I don't think they were allowed to um, to uh, be, you know, he, he was not allowed, I don't think, to go back to his home, judge knowing um, how uh, toxic that, that family was and further helped radicalize that young boy. Yeah, so this is a group that we have to be particularly concerned about. I'm also concerned about the level of depression, anxiety, and mental health challenges that younger people are having, which potentially could drive them into some of the darker corners of the internet where they could potentially find community in groups like this. My experience from talking to people who've put out a book like this is that it can really change things for you. Open up new doors, not that you needed any, but what has the reception been and what has it done for you to have done the work of putting out 200 plus page tome on young people in politics? I have had uh, several friends who have written books uh, and, and like, I, I, like, I now like will never think the same when I go into a bookstore or a library, like how hard it is, right? How much I respect for other people who have written and, and been able to kind of finish this task, okay? I had no expectations. I was so focused on the day-to-day. It's only been a couple of weeks. Um, I am most struck by, uh, by a couple of things, one of which is it's not like I get a lot of fan mail, okay? It, it makes you feel so good when you find people who have read the book and more than a handful of people have told me it's brought them to tears. All I'm doing is a researcher, right? And just connecting what I learn about younger people to others. So, but that affecting people so emotionally, it, it's it's impactful. And um, it helps people understand their own kids in new and different ways. So that's better than any review or any any listing on any sort of website. That's happened a fair amount. And it's only been a couple of weeks. I also am thinking now that it's been out that perhaps this has an ability to even further elevate the voice of younger people, give them more confidence. I'm more optimistic than they are. I've got the context, right? So I've talked to a, a lot of young activists in the last couple of, of days. I've, I'm receiving invitations you know, from groups I've never spoken to, individuals I've never spoken to who could influence the future of our country, who want to learn more about younger people from from me. So that's how it's kind of impacted. And it's only been a couple of weeks, but it, it seems to be tapping into something and um, giving voice to something that I think is is important, you know, um, if we're going to move forward as a community, as a country. I will say that I'm, I'm even more focused on finding additional ways to tell the story. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about other kind of creative elements to get that out there. There have been some good films, you know, Eighth Grade, a couple of years ago by Bo Burnham. Incredible. It, that was the thing where I, I saw like the view of this eighth grade girl to one week, out of, basically in her bedroom with her phone, that experience. That was exactly what I was seeing at the same time. So I'm going to try to find additional ways to collaborate with people to tell the story. I'm going to ask you the softest of questions because it's what's in my mind which might is, be the hardest though but go ahead yeah. when a young person looks at someone who has a successful company a prestigious appointment at a at a great school a consulting to presidential uh candidates and a lot of the and the kind of 
platform that you have writing a book, things like that, it seems unachievable. What I observe is that, you know, having kind of looked at the careers of so many people who are doing so many things is that it just happens a step at a time. What, what can you, what would you say to someone who, you know, is like the undergraduates that, that you see, but maybe not at Harvard about like how to create a career in politics or adjacent fields that is meaningful and, and makes a difference in the country? It's a very important question because I came from a working class uh, background, did not have any sort of connections or, or networks necessary to kind of hop into. And uh, I, I was honored to receive like a, a career achievement award, but I didn't receive a lot of academic awards when I was an undergrad. But I think I was always very, very passionate about what I believed in. And whether that was through kind of the, the activism when I was in college, I was in Amnesty International, other things. I was very, very passionate about it. And I also was able to identify somehow mentors and stay kind of close to them and learn from them. I believe I'm also very, very kind of fortunate. And now younger people have more ability to move than perhaps we did when we were kids. But I just remember what Gladwell said, right? You need to put the work in, but there's a little bit of luck or fortune, right? Because if Bill Gates didn't live near the University of Washington, he would not have had access to computers to program. Right. So he did a lot of work, but he also had access. I was fortunate being one of four pollsters living in Boston when Harvard wanted to do a project. And I had put the work in previously, but I also had access. So I think understanding both of those things is to me is is important. So and you can help drive that right in terms of the connections that you make and the platform that you create for, for yourself. But the experience of, of politics uh, it's the ultimate meritocracy. You win or you lose, you're working or you're not working. And the best pathway to winning and losing is by listening to voters. And I think that helps you become better at any job that you're doing, medicine, law, or being a carpenter or a, a welder, right? Listening and understanding those around you just makes you more successful. And that's, I think, one of the things I've learned most from politics. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you'd like to be asked? This was a very uh, substantive interview. I'm not sure. I think we covered we covered more than I ever expected. I, hopefully, you'll do a great edit and take out all the boring parts. But uh, really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, like, like fascinating to me to hear how you're thinking about this and put the story together relative to all the other podcasts, right? Because I think I probably have a similar background to like John Anzalone, right? who I never really worked that closely with. I've known him, but I, I, I didn't work too closely with him up until, you know, a year ago. So um, uh, anyway, that's uh, it's, it's interesting for me to hear what you're interested in. Yeah. I'm honored to have had the time with you and uh, appreciate it. Anything else you want to say? I only thing I want to say is that it's a good use of everyone's time to get to know uh, your kids, what they think about, what they care about, because we underestimate this generation, I think, at our own peril, right? There's more of them than us now. People sometimes ask me at, these end the, at the end of these podcasts what I can do as an older person, right? Um, and I think the advice I have for older people is to encourage and not discourage 
participation in politics or conversation around issues. Trump has made that difficult for folks. So I think encouraging that um, is something. And again, they don't know how much impact they've already made. I try to make that case in the book, um, the dozens and dozens and dozens of laws and examples that they've already kind of created. So yeah, I just think the more encouragement that um, parents and mentors and teachers and coaches can make about um, finding ways to engage not just in volunteerism, but also in the traditional work of voting and politics and civic is just going to make everyone's lives uh, stronger and uh, more fulfilling and our country stronger and better as well. You know, I remember lamenting somewhere in 2017, probably about what Trump was teaching young people about bad things about race and gender and so many things, just character. I think it was in, the, on, in an interview in the podcast, but I can't totally remember, said what is giving them the most hope is that they're learning the opposite. And that's still really an important effect of what's been a dark time in some ways. When we at the capstone of this generation, it's, it's two 70-year-olds and a few 17-year-olds are going to have the most impact. It's Bernie Sanders. It's Donald Trump. It's David Hogg, Emma Gonzalez, that group, Darnella Frazier, and the preteen, I think, you know, Greta Thunberg. That's the ironic thing. You know, and that's a great thing, right? And that's what we need to do more in terms of this intergenerational uh, collaboration, hopefully, though, not starting from such a negative place as we did in 15 and 16. Yeah. Well, thank you much. That was John Della Volpe. John is at Della Volpe on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.